starting at verse 22. Um, it's on page 1651 in the Black Bibles, and my apologies, I didn't do small Bibles. Does anyone have a page number? 739. So John chapter 3, starting at verse 22, and going through to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> There's a parallel there between um, the town Anon and Sydney right now. You'll pick it up. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Second reading is from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 17, which is on page 802 on the small Bible and page 1794 on the black one. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had, up, had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. And on the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Colin. Before I preach, I want to uh, just show you some uh, slides, gives you a bit of an idea of Corinth and also um, 
a picture is better than a thousand words, so when we get to a couple of things in the passage, I'll be able to refer to them. So this is just the, uh, the, main, uh, the main gate uh, of the old city of Corinth and the wall around the city. Some shops um, at Corinth and just some excavations there of what is now or what is left of it. This was the port. Um, you can see, put it this way, it, it actually extended further out. The water has uh, sort of come up. It's a bit like Ephesus, the old city of Ephesus, which is now um, la landlocked where once the water came, it's the reverse in Corinth. The water has come up and, uh, and there's not the land that used to be. This is the meat market in uh, Corinth, which actually is important when you're reading 1 Corinthians and more, more so than 2 Corinthians. And this is the, one of the roads leading into Cor Corinth. Here is the, uh, the temple of Apollo and the ruins of the synagogue. And this is, you, you can't see it very clearly there, but if you look closely, um, it is part of a, uh, a memorial to a man whose name is Erastus. And if you read Romans 16 and verse 23, it says this. Paul, is, Paul writes and he says, um, so-and-so sends greetings and there's a great list in the chapter and then it says, Erastus, who is the city's director of public works and our brother's quarters sends their greetings. So here you've got a, um, a historical memory of a person who was a, a leading official in the city who came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a prayer to Jesus to, uh, to protect the emperor. And this probably doesn't come up as well as I had hoped, but I was sort of trying to point out, out where Troas was and where Macedonia was. Macedonia is right up in the far left-hand hand corner and, and Troas is in about the middle. It's about 300 uh, 400 kilometres from one place to another, which Paul mentions a little bit later on in the, uh, in the passage that we'll look at. And this is uh, a sort of uh, stylized picture of a Roman triumph. I'll have to spend some time explaining to you what a Roman triumph is so that you actually get the irony and the sarcasm that Paul is uses when he writes this passage. Um, there is, if you didn't get one when you came into a church, there is a sermon outline and also I've put on it the, uh, the dealings of Paul with the Corinthian church so that you can follow them. The passage that um, I'll speak from, thank you for that, uh, Colin, the passage that I'll speak from is one of those passages that I mentioned last week where you've got to know a lot of the background or else you don't actually understand what Paul is getting at and you have to sort of understand the irony with which he speaks and I will try as, a, as best I can to uh, set that all out for you. Let me pray and then we'll turn to the passage itself. 
Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will soften our hearts to your word and sharpen our minds. And when we learn from this passage that we might be able to put things into practice in our lives and take encouragement from it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When a sporting team or an individual has a major triumph, such as winning the World Cup or an Olympic medal, they are often given a ticker tape uh, parade through the city and presented with the keys to the city. And this procession is similar to what Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, where he says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. As I mentioned last week, looking at the book of 2 Corinthians, you sort of need to uh, have some background knowledge, a little bit like, you know, well, what are they, who, who is she talking to on the telephone? And you, it all falls into place once you get the understanding of who she's spoken to. And so it is with Paul in regards to this passage of the Bible. And as I've said last week, he had a group of people in the church who were strongly opposed to Paul himself. They saw him as negative. They saw him as not being um, really encouraging and say, and they were saying the Christian life is one where you triumph all the time and where you have victories all the time and where you just power on. There are never any problems in the Christian life. And so Paul actually wants to say to these people, that's actually not the case. And the way in which he does it is that he begins by saying, well, I'm going to thank God who leads us, that is Paul and the other people who were ministering with him, as captives in Christ in a triumphal procession. Now, a triumphal procession was actually a technical term in the Roman world which had very significant meaning at the time of Jesus. If a Roman general had a victory, what would take place here was he might be given a what they call a triumph. And the, what would take place would be that there were certain criteria that it had to be fulfilled before a general could have a triumph. A little bit like, you know, you have a spreadsheet and you colour in red, reds and yellows and you decide who ought to get what according to certain criteria. Well, these were the criteria in regards to a Roman general getting a triumph, getting a procession through the city. First, He needs to be the commander-in-chief. He can't be second in charge. He has to be the commander-in-chief. And secondly, the campaign had to be completely finished, i.e. the people who uh, they had fought against had to be completely subdued. There weren't to be pockets of resistance still going on. And... 5,000 people would have to be killed in the war for you to get a triumph. Added to that, 
the territory that they gained actually had to be a gain for them. It, it couldn't be something that they'd captured in the past and who had now risen up and were trying to usurp themselves again. No, rather, it had to be a brand new territory. And so, if all those criteria were met, then the general was given a triumph when he returned to Rome. And the triumph had a particular order of how it would be done. The triumph was, one, first of all, the politicians led the triumph. Nothing new there. Let's move on. Nothing here, nothing here to see. And then what took place was that as they went through the city, the treasure that had been captured was paraded. For example, after Titus conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, the seven candlesticks, the golden table and the golden trumpets out of the temple in Jerusalem were led through the Roman city. Then came some painted pictures of the city itself and then a white bull which was to be sacrificed to show the power of the general. And last of all came the general in a chariot that had four white horses and attached to that would be the leaders of the country that had been captured. And that is what Paul is talking about here when he talks about a triumphal procession. But what he is saying to them is the Roman leader would have a triumph, but my triumph is actually the reverse of that. It's not one of power, it's actually one of service and Christian ministry and caring for other Christians is tough work. And that's why he gives us this little section in verses 12 and 13. What had taken place there was that Paul had gone on one of his journeys to Troas to preach. And by the grace of God, he'd had a good ministry. Not like in some places where he didn't have much success. But he was concerned about the Corinthian church. He'd been there, he'd preached to them, they had the problems, and he wanted to know how they had, were getting on. And so he'd sent Titus there. But Ty, and he and Titus were to meet up in Troas. But Titus didn't turn up, for whatever reason we do not know. And so Paul was worried about Titus and he was worried about how the church at Corinth was going. In other words, he's just like us. Because we worry about our ministries, don't we? We worry about our church. We think, what's going to happen? Where are we going to go? How's it going to grow? 
but we worry about the people in it. Someone's sick. Someone has a sadness. We're concerned for them. We're concerned that people will come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. We've all got relatives who don't know the Lord. And so we pray for one another and we pray for them. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to these people who think that it's all beer and skittles, it's not so. And he's saying to the Corinthian Christians who are upset and thinking, well, who's right here? You know, are these triumphalists correct? Should we be having no problems? Should our church be growing experientially? And Paul says, look, we worry about what goes on. I worry about you. And so bear that in mind. And so then he goes on and he says to them, this is how you exercise your ministry. This is how you care for, your, for the loved ones you have who know Jesus or don't know Jesus. And he says this in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, he talks to them about how they can talk about to others about Jesus. Some people are good at sharing what they believe about Jesus with others, but others don't necessarily have the gift of the gab or they don't have the confidence or they can't think quickly on their feet. And we've all done that, I'm sure. You know, someone says something in the office or at school or at work or somewhere and you go home and you think, oh, I should have said such and such, shouldn't I? Ah, rats. But you see, there's something else here that ought to be an encouragement to us. He says to us, we are the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, you can't see perfume once it's out of the bottle, can you? You know, if you put on the old spice or the Chanel number five, it doesn't leave a blue mark on your body, does it? You would want it to, would you? It can't be seen, can it? But it can be smelt. Mmm, you smell nice. And you see, that's what Paul's getting at here. You might not be able to speak up, or you might miss a chance. But we're being reminded here that we are the aroma of Christ. 
We influence people. Not always by speaking, but maybe by just being. And Paul sets out a few things for us. He says to us, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. In other words, by what we say and what we do may actually affect other people. That they are actually never left the same again. I, uh, on Thursday evening, I had the privilege of going to talk to a group of people who are linked to the death of those four young children. One of the girls was an elite soccer player, the cousin of the three that died. And so in my role as a sports chaplain, I was contacted and asked to go and speak to the club and the team. And so I went along to their clubhouse and there were about 40 people there, Uh, about 20 players from age 10 or 11 up to about 19 and their parents and some other people from the team. But one of the most important conversations that I had was the man behind the desk at the club. You know, you go in in and, uh, and they say, you know, sign in please. And I told the man what I was there for, and he said, dreadful, isn't it? Just awful. And he started to elaborate on it. And I said, and I empathised with him. And then he said, and what about the mother? And I thought, where is this going? And he said, how can she say that? How can she say what? I forgive him. She said, he said, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. How did she do that? And I said to him, well, she's a person who knows the forgiveness of God in her own life and has a personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus who's forgiven her. And so... She, as best she can, is trying to extend that forgiveness to him. And he made a few other comments and off he went. Now, you see, that man will never be the same again, according to this passage of the Bible. He's heard, he may have heard before and he may well hear in the future, but he's heard about the forgiveness And he's seen how it practically works out. And that might be the way it is with you, with the people that you come in contact with. It might simply be the way you treat somebody. It might be a kindness that you show to them. It might be the way that you deal with your own difficulties. People might say to you, I don't know how you cope. I don't know how you can do that. Or how did you get through? That's being the aroma of Christ in their life. 
And Paul then gives us some clues, some tips about how we might do it. First of all, he says in verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. In 2014, Hillary Clinton was paid $225,000 for a speech. That means that at the end of this day, after three sermons, I'm worth $675,000. Incredible, isn't it? 40 minutes, spruik for 40 minutes and get $225,000. Barack Obama got half a million for one. I won't charge you that. (laughs) What's Paul on about here? Well, in his day, there were paid orators, as there are today, and they would go around and speak. And Paul is saying to these people, these Corinthians, I'm not in it for the money. And you see, that's what in the end impacts on people. I heard of one man recently who had become a Christian. How did he become a Christian? He started to go to church with his wife. Hadn't been before. And after church, he went home and he said to his wife, they were nice people. And so he went the next week. And he went home, said to his wife, gee, they're kind people, aren't they? And then he went the next week. And he said, I can't understand these people. And he went the following week and he came home and he said the same thing. And she said, what don't you understand? And he said, well, nobody's asked me to do anything and nobody wants anything from me. He said, I've never met anybody in the whole world like that. Now, he wasn't on any of the church rosters, was he? But... That's next week. (laughs) Come week five. But you see, that's the difference, isn't it? We care for people. It's a different world to the dog-eat-dog business world, isn't it? Where people always want something from us. That's the way it has to be. But as Christians, we're not in it for the money. Or we're not in it for what we can get out of that other person. We are genuinely concerned for them. Secondly, we don't, on the contrary, in Christ we speak. So, as I mentioned, we might get the opportunity to speak, we may not. But if we do get the opportunity to think, speak, the most important thing is so that we don't fail the pub test is that we are actually sincere. That's what's going on here with Paul. The triumphalists were in it for what they could get out of it and they weren't being sincere. And Paul says, in Christ we speak with sincerity. That people can see we're fair dinkum, that we we are genuinely concerned for them. And when we get into their heart that way, we sometimes get the opportunity to talk to them. And the last thing to bear in mind is this, that 
as those sent from God. The background of that is people are saying, Paul's not a real apostle. He wasn't there with Jesus with the eleven. So don't take any notice of him. But, as we know, converted on the road to Damascus, saw Jesus, the risen Christ. And so he says he's got every right. So what right do we have to speak? Well, because God has given us the privilege, go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Friday's Sydney Morning Herald, the chief sports writer, Andrew Webster, wrote these words. The world shouldn't stop. He was on about Israel Folau. Here, the world shouldn't stop because of Folau and his dopey views about people burning in hell unless they repent. Well, what right have we got to speak to Andrew Webster? if we ever came across him. We have the right because God has given us the gospel and he sends us to tell people. And we ought to pray for Andrew Webster that before he dies, he realises that the gospel isn't dopey, that it is true. My guess is that we, if we looked at our own lives, we wouldn't think that we were in a triumphal procession. We don't seem to be all that successful. But we need to take a long-term view and we need to remember that we are part of a bigger picture. What happens when Jesus comes the second time, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is the king. There will be a triumphal procession. We are part of one where God uses our weaknesses. I always wished that I could bowl as fast as Dennis Lilly. And I used to say to God, God, if you made me that sort of a cricketer, I could tell lots of people about Jesus for you. But somehow he didn't. He didn't even make me a good spin bowler like Shane Warne or as good a halfback as Nick Farr-Jones. But God uses us where we are. We probably all wish that we had different gifts or different skills to the ones we have. But Paul doesn't go there. He just talks about what he's like and how God is at work. Christ has overcome death. He is marching on. And we can say thanks be to God who does and will lead us in a triumphal procession.
in the end. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you might help us with our various ministries, whether it's just be in the home or at work, to say nothing of what we do in our church. And Father, we'd actually rather be far more successful than we are if we could be. But we thank you that it is all of you and that you're the one who knows what is best for us as we exercise our ministries. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be encouraged by Paul's example, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.